1: We Mike, we are coming in off of a very hot weekend.
2: Yeah, I, w- I would say I still <laughs> <laughs> I still have the 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 scorch marks on my butt from what an exciting weekend. I'm yes,
1: like. it was exciting, and it was literally and figuratively hot.
2: Yes. So if you guys out there haven't been to Summerfest in Milwaukee, it is this like two week festival, magnificent. Where, yeah, where on the big stage it'll be somebody like Tom Petty. Um, pink, or pink, or the Rolling Stones, or something on the on the big stage. Yeah, and then they have twelve side stages where it'll be another headliner. So, uh, like on Thursday, we played uh, on the stage with A Wall Nation was the headliner. Yes, and okay. so we played, and it was ninety degrees. <laughs> <laughs> and the tickets are what,
1: like fifteen bucks, twelve yeah. bucks?
2: It's like fifteen bucks, and you get in, you can see any of the headliners.
1: Yeah, so you just wander around from stage to stage, and there's all these excellent bands playing, mm-hmm. and. Uh, and our band Sunspot played, so yes. we had a nice scorching hot afternoon
2: slot. Yeah, so we had another chance to introduce the people in Milwaukee to our weird sounds.
1: Yeah, and it was fun. Right on the lake, Lake Michigan there, mm-hmm. which is basically an ocean. <laughs> right, right. It's, it's
2: an inland sea.
1: <laughs> yeah, so we had the nice lake breeze coming off every so often.
2: It was funny. I was thinking about So we we played a song called Chariots of the Gods, and um, I, I mentioned, I think, Giorgio, like to the audience or whatever, I said, like... I'm not saying it's aliens, but it's aliens, <laughs> right? And I get, like, two people out there going, ha,
3: ha, oh, and everybody else going,
2: crickets chirping. Right. They don't know who Eric Fontanek <laughs> is. they <laughs> had in Red Chariots of the Gods. They're, like, looking at me like, I'm like, aliens, baby. They're like,
1: we need more explanation, please.
2: <laughs> right. So, but we had an awesome time at Summerfest.
1: So much fun and mm-hmm. saw tons of friends and there were people there that we've met, like,
2: all that, over the country. Yeah,
1: yeah, that came from afar and we got to see Sunspot shirts and... People singing along in the crowd. Mm -hmm. It was great. So thanks, everybody, who came to our set for that. Yes,
2: If you were listening to this and you came to Summerfest, I have so much love for you.
1: Yes. And a special shout out to Josh, another musician friend of ours who stopped Mm -hmm. by and said that he's a listener of the podcast, too. Yes, thank you, Josh.
2: Appreciate that.
1: Excellent Um, guitarist, keyboardist,
2: mm -hmm. singer, all around awesome dude. Yeah. So basically this week we've been working on music. We've been playing shows and we had an awesome conversation for the episode this week yes we sure did oh one of my favorites yeah and I, so the first time i saw this particular guy um i'd seen him on ghost adventures before and i'm like oh yeah he's cool on ghost adventures uh-huh. but i hadn't like watched his solo show oh. and so he did a, a thing at the chicago paranormal conference and i think i even talk about this in the chicago paranormal conference episode haunted haunted shore uh-huh. another like michigan kind of yes thing. And I talk about just how he blew everybody away. Like, so professional, yeah. so interesting. It's a real presentation. Yeah, um, It's not just some dude talking about ghosts for two well, hours. Well,
1: and that's how the interview felt as yeah. well. I didn't want it to end. He had so many
2: interesting things to say. He did. And So, guys, this is, I believe, the greatest haunted historian <laughs> of New England wow. ever to walk the earth All right. Well, let's not hold off anymore. We got to get to this interview. Everybody, let's give you a little Jeff Belanger. Jeff Belanger is the researcher, writer, and adventurer who finds all those spooky locations for the crew of the Ghost Adventures TV show to investigate. He's also written numerous books on ghosts and hauntings and recently climbed Mount Kilimanjaro. His PBS TV series, New England Legends, recently became available on Amazon Prime. And Wendy, Allison, and I are so happy to welcome Jeff Belanger to the show. Thank you for joining us, Jeff.
0: Hey, thanks for having me. I appreciate it.
2: Absolutely. We first met you in person at the Chicago Hauntings, uh, at least I did last year. And
0: Right,
4: uh actually that was uh two years ago. okay i think
0: think it might have been three years ago because i haven't been there the last two but i will be back again this year right oh
4: because last year last year you were at um sage paranormal i was
0: i was in england yeah last year so i I will be back in chicago this year so that'll be great well
2: then we'll be there to
4: and we will to to
0: bug you again
2: awesome Um, but you know i didn't know too much about you before i saw your presentation and um i was just i was like this guy's got something going on that we need to learn more about. So it's been a couple of years since we've met. And in that time, we wanted to have you on the podcast the entire time. So thank you for, for coming. down.
0: <laughs> well, thanks for finally asking.
2: <laughs> well,
4: you know. <laughs> so polite. Pro-
2: okay. So Jeff, let's start with uh, people that maybe aren't familiar with your work and stuff. Where are you from? And why are you a weirdo?
0: <laughs> How long do we have? <laughs> <laughs> All the time.
2: You need to tell us why you're weird. Uh-
0: the, the from part is pretty easy. I'm from New England, and uh, this, that's where I live. I, I hail from the northeastern United States. Uh, I like to think of us as kind of like the attic of the country, the spooky mm. attic where we keep secrets and dark stuff. Um, but I'm a, I'm a paranormal author and researcher. I've been interested in this stuff pretty much my whole life. And I think when you grow up in New England and, and places with a lot of history, you can't help but also get hooked on the haunts because they go hand in hand. Mm-hmm. And hmm I'm fortunate that I live in a part of the country that just kind of talks about it. It's not so weird. It's just like, oh, yeah, that old house, it's haunted. So what? I mean, it's not it doesn't have to be a big thing other than that. So from childhood, I've been interested. Uh, I did a lot of growing up in Connecticut and um, I I lived in the town next to Ed and Lorraine Warren. So I knew them since I was 10 years old, and I'm sure that had some influence (laughs) as well. Yeah. So I was, you know, I've been in their house since in their, in their museum and hearing those stories. And I remember thinking, wow, this is crazy. Uh, I went to school to be a writer and started writing for newspapers and magazines. And I just got hooked, got hooked on those stories and, and writing about them. And then I started a website uh, called ghostvillage.com. And then that, that was in 1999. Remember that? Wow, no.
2: <laughs> it, was on, one. it was on GeoCities, wasn't it?
0: Yeah, like my my website is now legal. It's 18 years old. Well, what's what's so it doing later? It's uh It can vote now. You know. It it can vote and it can process credit cards, so go ahead and do whatever you want. Um so yeah, no, it's it's just been this wild ride and then I started writing books and then working on ghost adventures and uh, I am fortunate to be able to just do a lot of different things in and around the paranormal and I've been doing it full time since 2004.
2: That's awesome. Very awesome. You know, when I think you talk about growing up next to Ed and Lorraine Warren, and how in the, the New England it's not as unusual per se to have ghost stories or be like, "Hey, this is a you know this house is 250 years old. There's going to be weird stuff associated with it." Did you have a, a singular experience or something that happened to you where you turned from somebody who maybe is like, "Oh, I thought this stuff was cool," to, um, "And then I saw her face, and I'm a believer." Like, yeah. did you have a moment we- like that?
0: Yeah, I did. And ironically, it was not in childhood. Uh, as a kid, I, I would have sleepovers at friends' haunted houses. And I didn't think they were lying to me, but I didn't have the experience. So I was just kind of like on the fence. I'm like, okay, well, these stories are around. I don't think everybody's lying about it, but I just haven't seen anything. Uh, that didn't happen till I was already writing about ghosts. Uh, I was writing about ghosts since the mid-90s for newspapers and magazines and then, uh, and then the website. So, my first experience happened in 2003, and it happened in Paris, France, when I was in the catacombs of Paris. Oh. And I was down there. Uh, the catacombs are this network, there's 300 kilometers of tunnels all underneath Paris. Uh, and it happened because 2,000 years ago, it was a Roman outpost, which evolved into a town, which evolved into a city, and they found all this great limestone uh, to build buildings with. And, and over time, the buildings are getting more compact and so on, and they were tunneling now to get more limestone. And when you build a city, you put the cemeteries on the outskirts, which is what they did in Paris. But then over three, four, five hundred years, the outskirts aren't the outskirts anymore. And the city has sprawled and encircled some of the cemeteries. And by the mid 1700s to 1800s, there's no more room to bury the dead. So they had two problems. One, buildings are collapsing because they're getting big and heavy and the ground underneath is hollow from all the tunnels. And two, the cemeteries are overflowing with corpses and humanity and just the smell is awful. People are getting sick. So they close these tunnels and they move just literally 60 generations of Parisians down into the, the tunnels. These bones are everywhere. So I'm down there and I, I speak uh, un petit peu français. So I, I'm kind of fumbling <laughs> my way. Uh, my français is uh, merde, as they say locally. <laughs>
4: Ooh, I'm going to have to bleep it now. <laughs> uh, we get What mean. do you mean?
0: That's not the FCC <laughs> list of words. <laughs> so uh, anyway, so the um, – so. I go down there and I'm walking through these tunnels. I'm about six foot two and I'm making lefts and rights. And then eventually I see this doorway that says in French, uh, stop, this is the Empire of the Dead. And I walk through and and there's millions upon millions of skeletons in this very macabre pattern just all around me. And walking through one hallway uh, where the bones were fingertip to fingertip wide, I saw what looked like a man, the shadow of a man go from the right side to the left and back again. And in that moment I just froze and I said, "Okay, wait a minute. You know, I know no one came up from behind me because it's they would have bumped into me." Then I'm thinking every rational thing I possibly can. Is there a little side tunnel and someone popped in and I looked and no and I, could it be a shadow from a light? No, the lights are at my shoulders aiming down and I ran out of every single word but one and that's ghost. And in that moment I went, "Oh my god, this is what everyone's talking about because I did I'd already interviewed hundreds of people mm-hmm. about their ghost experience at that point now It's thousands upon thousands, but in that moment. I realized you know I'm not psychic sensitive or otherwise. I didn't ask for it. I wasn't looking for it I never assume it's gonna happen, but there I was and it happened and it took well it took You a- you were asking for forever.
2: something because you did go to an underground tunnel full of bones
0: <laughs> Yeah, no, I, I guess I was asking for something and and funny part of the story as I leave There was a guard at the exit, and I had a bag with me that had, like, cameras in there and some recording equipment and notebooks and stuff like that. And as I come out, he said, hey, I need to search your bag. And I went, oh, well, usually they search you going into a place, but uh, (laughs) whatever. So they look, and I went, oh, my God, you're looking for bones. And he said, yeah. And he turned around, and there was a table that had, like, a skull and a leg bone and an arm bone. And he said, said, that's from this morning. And I went, oh, my, you know, I mean, like... (laughs) This is a consistent, ongoing, every day, every every hour problem. And uh, that's got to be, I mean, I'm not an overly superstitious guy, which is weird, right? But that's got to be bad luck to uh, sneak a bone out of there. And I did not. I did so. not sneak a bone out. Um,
4: I wanted to ask about, you know, so that was like your first real experience. And, you know, I wanted to kind of ask about that because, you know, I've obviously been interested in this stuff for forever. Um, You know, and interviewed people and and such. And I I always had some skepticism, like, you know, a lot, a lot, you know, Uh, bordering on cynicism for a while there. But recently I have had some experiences, but they're just so fleeting. And then regular life, you're just back right into regular life a second later. So I just wondered, like, how many people, like, really discount um, like, you know, real experiences they might be having because they are so fleeting. Uh, you know, I don't think many people have, a, a, have that experience where the ghost actually sits down and has a long, thoughtful conversation right. with them. It's more like you glimpse something just for a moment yeah. and then it's gone. And you're into the crush of uh, normalcy and uh, banality. So, you know, how do you deal with that?
0: Yeah. Well, uh, it's easy. I, I tell everyone, and I'll tell this to you as well, there's only one judge who matters. And that's you, the person who had the experience. When someone comes up to tell me about their experience, uh, I, I, I can't judge it unless I was there when it happened. And they say, do you see that thing over there? And I can either say, yes, I do, or no, I don't. I can't judge someone else's personal human experience. If you were to come up to me and tell me how much you love your children or your pet, I can't really judge that either. There's no quantifiable way to judge your capacity to love a child or a spouse or you know a partner or a pet uh, just like if we watched a movie and you said it was the funniest movie ever I can't judge humor there's no scale that we can all agree on I can, I I can judge, judge humor anger. <laughs> I'm glad someone can um, but yeah no but you know what I mean so we all these human emotions are it, it is it is an emotional human experience. Psychology is not an exact science. You can't predict human behavior uh, you know, to the minute kind of thing. So if you have an experience and you perceive it as a ghost, then that's for you to judge and you to, you to take that with you. And it doesn't really matter at the end of the day what other, other people think about it. Unless you're one of those kind of people that wants to make everybody happy, but then you're kind of miserable and I don't want to be your friend. <laughs> so,
2: <laughs> so when you had your ex- so when you had your experience, Jeff, and, and you know and you're the first time, and like you said, uh, you know you've been writing about this for a long time. But it's something you're into all your life and then you're in you know the magical land of Paris, and it's awesome. Now I'm trying to get this through my head because you go down to the catacombs and there's a, oftentimes there's a line of people. You know, as you're walking through, you know, in a museum kind of way, that the lights are kind of dim down there. And yeah. There's those little displays. So, were there people behind you? Were there people in front of you? Was the shadow in like walk in front of you, like the path, or was it against the wall? Like, can you just just give us a little more detail? Yeah, on that? sure.
0: Yeah, there was no one there. Absolutely no one. Um, I went in uh, a, a unique entrance because I knew somebody. Okay. And um, and there was no one down there until <laughs> I left. And I've been back since, by the way, that I went back a few years later and went right back to the same spot, ready for that ghost (laughs) to come out again. Uh, And it did not. So picture a long straight tunnel and somewhere about, you know, 30%, a third of the way down, something walks across, two legs, arms. I mean, I couldn't make out features and went to the other side and then it kind of went back. So there's no one else around me, no one way down the tunnel, no one behind me, no one anywhere. Uh, and I didn't see anybody until I came out and came back to the surface. So, yeah, no, believe me, I, I try to rule all that stuff out. Um, and, and I get how you can even question your own senses. Am I jet lagged? Am I this? Am I that? I mean, it was 11 o'clock in the morning. I hadn't been drinking yet, you know, so I get it. I mean, I, I get all that. But I've also had a few other experiences later where there were three other people standing around at the same time. And that I understand from a skeptic's point of view, it, it, my own skeptical point of view is more interesting. So if I say, do you see that? And three other people say, uh-huh, I do. Well, I don't believe in mass hallucinations. So, you know, I, I mean, it's, to me, that was that was even more compelling when other people could verify the thing that I also saw.
2: What was that? Was,
0: <laughs> yeah, where, I mean, let's go. As in course. So that happened, now, keep in mind, so I've been doing this for almost, for, for literally, actually, like 20 years now, because I, I worked on a, my first paranormal project in 1997. So nice. 20 years. And, um, uh, we were in Waverly Hills sanatorium and there were four of us on, on the third floor. And we had just walked through Waverly Hills is a place where thousands of people have died from tuberculosis. Uh, it was a place people went to try to be comfortable, you know, as they were suffering through this disease, get, um, treatments and so on. Some people lived with tuberculosis the rest of their life. Some people died really quickly and, and everything in between. So uh, it's a scary place. And as we're walking through the hallway, all the windows are gone. It's all wide open now. And we stood right where there's a bend in the building. So we could look way down this hallway and way down this hallway and chatting one in the morning, four of us. And suddenly about uh, 15, 20 feet down, it was three doors down on the left, a man stepped out and looked out into the hallway, and then stepped back in, and we all stopped talking at the same time. And I said, did you just see that? And someone said, you mean that guy that just walked out? Uh huh. So we run to the door, looking everywhere, because it, it may be, maybe some homeless guys up there we didn't know about, whatever. Sure. So we're looking everywhere, and in the time it took us to close that space, the only place that a living person could have gone was either out into the hallway where we were, or out the third story window, and we would have heard the legs breaking and stuff as they hit the ground. <laughs> so then you look at each other and you go, OK, we all saw the same thing. We all reacted the same way. And now it's not there. And that I say, I, you know, if not a ghost, I don't have another word for you. I can't promise there's life after death. I've never died. But I can promise I can't figure out what that was.
2: So if you guys are interested at home learning more about Waverly Hills, we do an interview with Christopher St. Booth, uh, who shot a movie in Waverly Hills, spooked uh, a documentary, and then he shot like a, um, well, you know, a horror film called... uh I think it's got several. I think "Dead Still" is one of the names. There's, like that particular one, I think there's like three names, like "Death Asylum" or something like that. But um, we'll put that link in the show notes, and you'll be able to find that uh, link to learn more about Waverly Hills, where Jeff had a, a multiple—I say a multiple user experience, but a multiple, <laughs> like a multiple witness. Yeah, uh, experience. yeah, and
0: it's—it's—and I think too part of it is you know this gets down to well what is a ghost you know and I think ghosts are here because we need them. We need them in some way. Uh, there's no ghost without a living person. Uh, not that I found anyway. Uh, if, I don't think they exist in a vacuum. And if they do exist in a vacuum, it actually doesn't matter. And this this gets back to a really old philosophical question, right? If the tree falls in the woods mm-hmm. and no one's around to hear it, doesn't make a sound. And I actually have an answer to that. And the answer to that is it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if it makes a sound or not. And that's a totally egocentric, humanistic way to view the world. I understand, but that's my limitation. I am a human. And that's that's my worldview. It's all I know. So if that tree is falling right now, it's irrelevant to me, whether it makes a sound or not, unless well, I'm there or a reliable witness is there to to hear it. And that includes a camera, right? I mean, a camera right. is still I, I view that as an extension of a human, you know, like because we have to review it. So um, anyway, so I think when we go to places like Waverly Hills, we're connecting to the past. That's that's what we do. We are all a product of the past. We're a product of our parents who raised us, our friends, the communities we lived in, and all the history that left a mark on those locations and all the places we visit. You know, some people have a huge influence, like hopefully our parents. Some people have a really minor one, like the person that served you coffee the other day at the coffee shop. It doesn't matter. Everyone has some sort of influence. And we're human beings. And I I don't call it psychic or whatever. I just call it empathy to kind of connect. You go to a place like Waverly, and you imagine what it must have been like to go in there and think, Oh my God, this could be my last address. This could be the last stop. I'm sick, really sick. I know tons of people die from this disease I have. And here I am going to this hospital that treats just this, uh, where people are going to be leaving daily in a bag. And when you go there i don't i think it's to be human is to just try to tune into that i mean if you ignore it I don't, why are you even there you know if if you're going to go there and ignore that kind of thing so maybe in tuning in we we summon something we we conjure it i don't know but the experiences happen again and again in places like that
4: what can you say about processing i mean for me one of the experiences i had i'm not going to go into the details except to say i did see an orb with my eyes um and you know which is Kind of funny because, you know, orbs on video, orbs in photography, you know, if I had a dime everybody (laughs) for uh, every time anybody came and showed me a picture like that. And, you know, for me, it's probably dust. You know, there's so many things, moisture, uh, lens flare that it could be. But, you know, then when you see one with your eyes, you know, zooming past (laughs) your head. Oh, he's got
2: it. (laughs) (laughs) I see an orb. Uh,
4: (laughs) uh, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so when you see one um, You know zooming past your head And then have to turn around And and look You know to to see what just happened there I mean wow that really kind of Reframed it for me but yet It was yeah. so fleeting that even though You know that That night when it happened we had a podcast Right after so you think I would have mentioned that And then after that we had An investigation Um And you know, you think I would have mentioned it and somebody interviewed me for their documentary. You think I might have mentioned it, but I didn't. I that was a Saturday. And until that next Monday, I didn't mention it to anybody. I, it, I don't know what what happened with the with the processing. And then I call Mike on Monday and I'm like, oh, by the way,
3: something. Yeah,
4: it's just weird because I'm into it. And yet I have this delay in processing. So I'm wondering what it's like for other people and and how much weird stuff maybe actually happens that's just kind of swept under the rug or lost. Yeah,
0: well we're all individuals. So some people process something immediately by talking about it to anyone who will listen. Other people, you know, sit on it for the longest time. When I'm interviewing someone about their paranormal experience, like if I'm interviewing them for a book or something where I really want the detail or a documentary, I always interview them three times um, in a row, by the way, this isn't, you know, I mean, this, I'll ask the first question. Tell me what happened. And I find that different personality types are going to give you different details on the three times you ask. One personality type is going to spill their guts, everything they possibly can, because that's they understand. That's why they're there. Other people might say, I came home from work. There's a little girl standing at the top of the stairs and then she's gone. I don't know what to make of it. And you go, OK. Well, let's let's slow that down a minute. So, did you did you have to unlock the door with your key, or was it already unlocked? And and in doing that, I'm not I know those are mundane details, but what I'm trying to get them to do is slow down uh, the whole sensory experience. And then I ask about senses. Did you smell anything? Did you see anything? Did you hear any buzzing? Was something different about every other time you've come home from work? And you said, and and then they start to like, okay. So I took a step. I did put my keys down, which I don't usually do. And then you know, and you start to hear other details. As they're putting themselves back into it and and then you're kind of connecting and then the third time is for me is I call it cleanup where it's like anything else we might have missed you know memory is fallible and that's that's one of the Mm -hmm. tricky things about all this and not only that uh, when someone has a profound experience and does start to share it with others there's a there's a natural thing that happens um, through the nature of folklore and storytelling and it doesn't make anybody a liar or a bad person but we naturally start to embellish stories so For example, if I went through something and uh, and I told someone one hour after it happened, that's as close to as accurate as you're going to get as far as how it goes. Because after I've told a few people my profound story and they start to lean in in certain parts, you know, like, really, what happened then? And at that part of the story that I'm going to I'm going to I'm on stage now, I'm going to add a little flair that I hadn't added before. And that's one of the things that naturally occurs We don't mean to, but we realize we have a rapt audience and we're going to do it. And the story is going to change just like the telephone game. So for a person like me and folks like you, uh, where you're out there already saying, hey, we're freaks, we're into this weird stuff, you know, (laughs) and someone has an experience and says, "Okay, this is what went down last night. Can I talk to you about it? I think you're going to get as close to the mark as you can possibly get because the story will change. And I've also seen people who uh, a a year later after I've interviewed them said, you know what? I I don't think that was a ghost anymore at all. I just, I think I was just overtired uh, or whatever, because they've told the story and they've been ridiculed by enough people that they now feel embarrassed and don't want to share it. So maybe Alison, when you saw your orbs, you're like, how many times have I scoffed at orb pictures and photos (laughs) and said, dude, that's one dusty room, you know? uh, And, and now suddenly you have this visual experience and, a little bit of embarrassment makes you sit on it for a while. I don't know. I mean, we're all individuals, but that's yeah. that's how some people tick. Thank you. When
2: we talk about processing and we talk about uh, how a story evolves over time and how folklore evolves over time, and you've really gotten into the folklore of New England. Yeah. You know, have you known anything in particular? Maybe a story you heard as a kid or something that excited you that you eventually went to investigate and either found it remarkably different or you found it way more accurate than you thought it was ever going to be? Both. Okay.
0: And it's the same story, (laughs) right? So I can give you an example of both way more incredible than you ever would have guessed uh, and incredibly accurate at the same time. So in Southern Rhode Island, there's the story of a vampire named Mercy Brown. Mercy Brown is a real person. Was it real?
2: Does Mercy Brown like that? Sounds like the name of like a funk band or something like that. Yeah,
0: no, for sure, real person. Um, I've seen her grave. I've seen the grave of her family, and you know she's well documented in the in the newspaper accounts and so on. So in the 1890s, um, the Southern Rhode Island, especially, was hard hit with consumption, tuberculosis. And what happens when a plague circulates in a community like tuberculosis? Uh, is that people start to lose rational thought, and this is normal, and it's happened before. It happened with the Black Plague in Europe. It happens all the time, and vampires have been around for centuries and centuries. And vampires become scapegoats for things. So, for example, you live in a town, and uh, you live on a, on a street. Maybe there's four houses. In one house, everybody in the f- in the house dies from this disease. The next house down, nobody gets even. Nobody even is sick. The next house down, one person dies. Uh, people in the community start looking at this going, okay, they were sinners. They were bad people, and God punished them. The house where everybody died. This house, obviously, God shows favor. This house, you know, metza. metza. Uh, you know, so one person was particularly bad because science doesn't have an answer for you. I don't know why all the, they all died and this one didn't. We have a little better understanding today, the spread of germs, washing your hands, so on and so forth. But at the time, they didn't have a better answer, other than, I, I don't know, you know? And so the Brown family was was really hit hard by consumption. First, the mother died. Uh, a year later, the oldest daughter died. Then the, the only son gets sick, and they sent him out to the, the west coast into the mountains because the dry air was good for people with consumption. And then Mercy gets sick, and she dies in January of 1892. And... That's important to the story because in New England, in the northern climates here, when you die in the winter, they don't bury you right away because the ground's frozen. So a lot of these old cemeteries have these little stone buildings called keeps where bodies would be placed in there until the spring and then it would thaw and then you could dig a hole and put them in. So Mercy's placed in the keep. Now, after Mercy died, Edwin came back. And, and keep in mind, as a kid, all I'd heard was that there was a vampire in southern Rhode Island, you know, and, and we all hear this stuff growing up. But yeah, did you hear about the vampire, the vampire. So um, so uh, Edwin comes back because he doesn't want his dad to be alone. And when he returns, he's taking a downturn and it's not looking good at all. So doctors don't have an answer. Uh, science doesn't have an answer, but folklore does. And someone whispers to, to George Brown, the father, you are the victim of a vampire. Find the vampire and you might be able to save your son. And anyone with kids knows if you have a one in a billion chance of saving your kid, you'll take it. You will take the one in a billion shot because you're desperate. So uh, the first place to look is the family. And, and come March, three months later, they exhume the bodies of uh, his wife. They exhume the bodies of his daughter. And they find that they're decomposing as one would expect. And then they go to the, the, the keep, the crip. And they open it up, and Mercy hadn't been buried yet, and they find her body had moved. And there's a trickle of blood in the corner of her mouth. And they even said she made a sound, a groan, when they pulled her body from the casket. And she hadn't decomposed whatsoever. And, and all of this is just smoking gun proof that she's clearly the vampire. The Providence Journal covered all this. The Providence Journal is a major newspaper, covered all this and said, look at what these nutso bumpkins are doing. In southern Rhode Island, you know? (laughs) And a doctor then surgically removed the heart from Mercy, found liquid blood. This is just, you know, smoking gun number four or five at this point. And they burned that heart on a nearby rock, mixed it in an oil elixir, and fed it to Edwin to break the spell, to to kill the vampire that must be Mercy Brown. Now, this all must sound like a tall tale, like completely crazy. But it, it actually all makes perfect scientific sense. If you die in a cold New England winter decomposition is going to happen really slowly, if at all. So that's why her body didn't look decomposed. It really didn't warm up yet. The other thing that can happen is your blood uh, congeals and liquefies over and over throughout the decomposition process as soon as the bacteria starts to eat your body from the inside. She was never embalmed. This was before the days of embalming. So she's not embalmed. Uh, you're, you're, as, as the bacteria start to devour your insides, it releases carbon dioxide, which can fill your chest cavity with air. If that air gets pushed back over your vocal cords, you can absolutely make a groan. Uh, You can make all kinds of sounds, um, you know, as that happens. Mm -hmm. Your body can move. It can sit up. It can do all these things that can look completely preternatural. However, it's a normal part of of decomposition, especially a really slow one that's happening in the cold winter months. Edwin died anyway. Uh, Mercy Brown was then buried properly. And the story to this day survives. Yes, she was a vampire in that she was a scapegoat for a horrible disease that, uh, that, you know, took over a community and killed a lot of people. No, I don't think she was, you know, some kind of demonic creature or whatever. But she was indeed a vampire by the earliest definition before it really radically changed just a, literally a couple years after her death when Bram Stoker wrote a book called Dracula, which took the vampire into a whole new realm, a whole new direction. And now they're, they're sparkly teenagers, you know, in the sunlight right. and the beautiful people. They were, <laughs> traditionally, they were always walking corpses. They were dead people who fed on the of vitality, the lifeblood of the living. And so that's, that's what mercy was, at least conceptually, uh, until, you know, the inevitable happened and Edwin died anyway. And George Brown lived out the rest of his days alone. Tragic story. Uh, born here in New England.
2: What a great story! And <laughs> th- th- what I love is that we just kind of glossed over is that, like, oh yeah, mercy that you know they had to they dig her up and she was already dead. Uh, poor Edwin had to eat the heart. Like somebody had to prepare that. Yeah. Like they yeah. had to prepare, a, you know, a, a, a little girl's. I mean, yeah, maybe not a little girl, but a, a you know.
0: Yeah, she was. A, she was a teenager. Yeah,
2: a teenager's heart. Somebody had to like, like, I don't know, cook it, put it in the microwave. Like you just, you know, yeah. like
4: <laughs> well they didn't have okay. then. fine. <laughs> know, <laughs> it would have exploded and how anyway. Do? It's like is you know do how you do I know s- that? Do you Don't spice me. it? Um, yeah.
0: No, it's a pretty it's a pretty simple recipe. Um, <laughs> but you know, desperate times, you know, and that's the right. that's the thing that it, yeah. it's so easy for us to forget and sit here in this internet age where we can Google things and stuff like that. You're so desperate and you wanna you know, I I would I mean I'm total conjecture here, I'm just guessing. Sure. Maybe even Edwin was like, Dad, this is nuts. But it's so important to you that, what the hell, I'll try it because I'm, I'm, looking, I'm looking into your eyes, Dad, and seeing the absolute desperation. And not only that, I recognize I'm dying. I'm going to die. And if this fixes it, what the hell? Now, here's the crazy thing this, this wait, recipe. Now
2: is the crazy thing. Yes, ready? <laughs>
0: Here it is. That recipe has worked before. Whoa. That's why people do it. Now.
4: Yeah.
0: Because it only has to work one and two million times for people to say yeah. it has worked. And did it work or was that person naturally going to get better anyway? That's the thing, you know, sure. You you could take the skeptical point of view and be like, yeah, that person was probably on the mend as it was. And they that elixir was completely irrelevant. But it doesn't matter. They got better. People remembered the process and passed it along.
4: Well, we've started to talk about New England Legends. So let's talk about your show, New England, yeah. England Legends, because th- that... That's available now um, on Amazon yeah, can, Prime. As soon
2: as you're done listening to this, you can go on your phone and you can watch it.
0: That's right. No, we, yeah. we did. Um, we started this for PBS years ago. And it's just all these great stories. Um, I've got a my, my partner in this, a guy named Tony Dunn. He and I just love legends. We, we, it turns out we were born in the same hospital about uh, 10 months apart. We, we figured that out the first project we worked on. And um, we just love these great stories because they're part of the fabric of our community. You know, I mean, we've got the historic buildings that get preserved. Uh, we've got, uh, you know, historic reenactments that happen all the time from the first shot fired of the Revolutionary War to Paul Revere's house in Boston and so on. But these these legends and folklore, uh, I think, are as just as important as the buildings and, and things like that. And we're trying to just take snapshots of them. Just like I told you about Mercy Brown, there's mm-hmm. so many funky, weird stories, uh, whether it's a haunted place. Or, uh, you know, uh, for example, one of, one of my favorite ones that we covered was uh, the Shakers, the, the Shaker community in a town called Harvard, Massachusetts, not to be confused with the university. Uh, it's a small town outside of Boston. They had the Shaker Fountain of Youth and they sold Shaker medicinal spring water. And, and the, you could find the ads from the 1880s, like cures, you name it, everything, dropsy and, you know, like all kinds of crazy things and, and, uh, and um, pro- promotes long life. And that's one of those things. This is before the days of truth in advertising. You could say anything you want in an ad and you say, yeah, OK, you live forever if you drink this spring water. That's very funny. But then you go to Harvard and you look at the, the Shaker Cemetery and we filmed all this. You walk through the cemetery and you see all these headstones aged 91, aged 92, age 88, It died in 1843. At the time these people died, the the life expectancy in the United States was in the forties. If you take into account things like infant, you know, mortality rates right. and so on, these people were more than doubling, more than doubling the life expectancy. And so you start to go, well, wait a minute now, you know, like what's right. what, what's going on here? So you start looking.
4: The real question is, where do I get some of that snake so oil?
2: The sna- we <laughs> Walk found a, Waukesha. We have it in Waukesha
0: too. That's right. So we we found it. So we, we we there's this little hut out there in the woods, and I had seen it years ago when I was working on a book. Someone took me. It's got an old rusted padlock on it. Uh, but this time we went back with our film crew, and this was the the well house, and they used to have a pipe that would run down to their their community where they would bottle it and sell it. The, the, a road was put in in the 1950s. It's it's long gone. It's all dismantled. But that little stone house. Is still there and it's maybe five feet tall and it's got that rusted padlock so we went out there with the whole harvard historical commission we had keys we had bolt cutters we were ready to get in and i was thinking you know how cool would it be if there's like a dead body in there like indiana jones <laughs> <laughs> and uh and, and one of the guys was like how cool would it be if there was a live body in there right. and uh
3: and i'm like <laughs> good point
0: i'm totally stand corrected here so we, we pry this old door open and look down, and there's maybe like three, four inches of crystal clear cold water coming up through the silt and sand. And so I did what I think anybody would do. I, I dipped the jar down there very gently so I didn't stir up the silt and got water. And uh, we brought champagne flutes, and we, we poured some water around, <laughs> and we, we drank it. And I have not aged a day since then. <laughs> so... Uh, you know, whatever.
2: Guess we know there where the next tour stop's going to be, guys. So, exp- so we Man, we out about the the, the Quaker. I, shakers, we always think of shakers. the Quaker, right? The Shaker, Shakers versus Quakers. What's the, what's the difference? Like one guy loves the oats, and the other guy no, there's a huge difference. Loves Elvis. So what?
0: So the Quakers are still around. You know why? Because yeah. they have sex. Uh, <laughs> uh,
4: <laughs> what? What? That helps.
0: The, the Shakers do not, and they're mm. gone.
4: No. Oh, you, but even though they live
0: They forever. live forever because it turns out <laughs> we learned more. a little more about the Shakers while we were there. So, it turns out the Shakers keep the men and women separate pretty much at all times, including church, separate entrances, and so on. Uh you can never be born a Shaker. No one ever was. You would choose it somewhere in life. You you may have had oh. kids of your own and then you you say this isn't for me. I'm, I'm going to go become a Shaker. And they they're called Shakers because as they're praying, they would go into these like violent shaking things. This like Ecstatic sort of uh, prayers, and that's why people call them the Shakers. They lived very clean lives—no alcohol, no drugs, no sex. uh, Clean living—you know, lots of sleep, lots of prayer, and maybe magic water. And (laughs) and so, uh, maybe that had something to do with their longevity, I guess, possibly. You know, but uh, but I'm going with the water because I'm not going to give up those other things. So uh, here we are.
2: Okay, that's awesome. So. That was an exciting New England legend you covered. And so that's one of the shows that you that are currently going to be on uh, Amazon Prime. And then you also have a, a stage show that has gone on to yeah. as well.
0: So that's, that's, um, that's something that came together a couple of years ago. Uh, I've got a photographer friend named Frank Grace, and he takes these great eerie pictures of all, all kinds of haunted places. And um, so he and I did a calendar back in 2000, God, what was it, 14, 2013. We did this, this haunted New England calendar. Yeah, there it is, Mano. and so um uh so we've been doing a calendar every year, and I said, man, these pictures are amazing. So what we did was we put together some storytellers from New England, like Carl Johnson, who used to be on the Ghost Hunter Show, uh, my friend Tim Weisberg, who's a radio host, uh, Andrew Lake from my Thirty odd Minute Show. He's got a great voice. These guys are just passionate about ghost stories, and the idea was to create. And I'm not aware of anything else like this: a fiction stage performance of Ghosts in history set to photos, and I, I know it sounds crazy. So a picture, a ghost tour where you don't have to leave the seat. So for example, one of the stories we did was the Lizzie Borden house, where a, a, a screen that fills the whole stage with Frank's photo of the Lizzie Borden house comes up, and it's creepy looking. And then we come out and we say, "Welcome to Fall River. We're here at the Lizzie Borden house. Let's go inside." And the image will change to the inside. And we go through the house almost like a tour. And this is where Andrew Borden was murdered. And this is what happened. And, and then we talk about some of the ghost sightings in the room in very much the present tense, the here and now, um, and, and kind of like these short stories. And then the next storyteller comes on and tells a different story. And so uh, it's something that we've done a few times now. We're doing it again this fall. The stories are going to change. The pictures will change each year. And the whole idea is to make it this annual Halloween production. And so we made a documentary about not just some of the performance but why we care so much about ghost stories. And we really explored that. It's, 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 the, the great thing about them is that there's an elephant in the room, right? The elephant in the room is death. We're talking about something that happens after we die, whether we're remembered in some cosmic way, whether we stick around in some spiritual way or otherwise. That's, that's one of the questions that ghost story begs. If you're a skeptic and you just love ghost stories, fine, come enjoy. You know, If you are really into this and you want to go hunt them, that's fine, too. But we don't share EVP or ghost photos or anything like that. It's just the stories and the history, because to me, that's always that's the part that endures. That's we can argue about, well, did someone whisper when you recorded that or whatever? But the stories endure and they become part of our, our collective consciousness. They become something we share, something we all contribute to. And that's what I, I love best about all this is that sharing in that that tapestry that is a part of a community and part of who we are.
2: When you talk about the EVPs and the evidence and, and kind of connecting it to your work, because you've worked in the ghost hunting side of TV.
0: Yeah, for you sure.
2: Know, and, and I'm sure a lot of our uh, our listeners will have remembered you and, and stuff from that particular aspect. So how did you move from being historian, collecting stories and stuff like that, to then being a, like a, a location researcher for a rough and tough group of ghost adventurers?
0: <laughs> yeah. So that happened. Um, so <laughs> ghost adventures started in, well, it started as a documentary and I didn't work on that. But then, um, in 2008, when they got picked up by the travel channel, Zach called me and he'd heard, um, uh, our, our mutual friend, Dave Schrader had said, you know, you need a guy that knows haunts everywhere. Jeff's the guy. So it was uh, not just scouting locations but also giving them the history of the building and, and the, the location and what happened there finding the people that have stories to share to come on because the beginning part of the show is produced that's it, there's no apology for that it's that's we we want to set the stage mm-hmm. other shows are trying to prove if a place is haunted or not haunted we don't we're going someplace because it's haunted you know I mean but if, if a show really wanted to be truly objective and say we're going to go determine if a place is haunted or not why not go to like the brand new Walmart that was built three months ago and investigate there and say, well, wow, we found ghosts. Who would have thought?
2: That would be your control in the experiment would yeah, be the and- building that was just built where nobody's died. Maybe the souls of the people who work there have died, but that's about it. <laughs> yeah,
0: that's the control. And no one would watch that episode because it would be really boring. It would be not interesting. And there's no, there's no contextual setting for it. So, um, so I get it, but, um, so yeah, so, it, so really it, I'm not doing anything different for Ghost Adventures that I don't do uh, before for books and, and that I haven't done since. They want the history and we want to get that part right. We want to set the stage. And so that's what I've been doing for the show. And then once they start investigating, hey, it's, it's all on them. Whatever happens, happens. Once the lights go out and, and they start the, the nighttime investigation, I, I don't have anything to do with that part of it. I just.
4: So you're the substance. Uh, you're, you're the guy that makes it. Uh, no,
0: day. I mean, I think. It's a, it's a whole,
4: well, that's what my interpretation. Well,
0: thank you for saying that. But I think it's, um, you, you know, I can tell you from our, our, uh, our focus groups or whatever, I, people seem to enjoy the investigation part more. Um, that's what they, they tune in for and that's cool. Hey, whatever, whatever people like, that's, that's great. I, I'm just grateful that the show's still going since 2008. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's pretty remarkable that we're working on season 14. I mean, you know how many TV shows make it 14 seasons, uh, Doctor Who. Uh, uh, Not many. Yeah, but like we're <laughs> we're in the single digit percentile of like shows that can Man. last that long. Mm-hmm. And and I've, and how many people can continually to work on a show for fourteen seasons? I may have broken a record somewhere, you know. <laughs> right, so, dude, uh, you hit
2: the jackpot.
0: Yeah, no, it's great. I love it, and it allows me to do all the other stuff that I do. And uh, I'm super grateful to the the people that watch it and enjoy it. And. And I'm grateful that I I get to have the life I live. And that's certainly part of it. Well, one thing
2: I I think there, you did make a great point. You're like, well, the focus groups like the investigation. You know, they have to eat their vegetables (laughs) before they get to dessert.
0: I agree. Yeah. (laughs) No, and I've said, I've said along. So for example, if you had a show and I've seen shows like this and I'm not naming any names, but they're like, oh, this was built in 1850. Let's look for ghosts. And and to me, that's like, (laughs) if you were to go see a stage, uh, a stage production, a play, And all the there's no setting whatsoever. And all the actors walk out completely in black and they start acting. And in your mind, you're going, what year is it? 1950, 2015, 1820. I mean, is it a space? Are we in space? Are we on the farm? You you know, so you you,
4: set setting. That's right.
0: So to me, the history is the set and setting. And we're putting the stage up. We're letting you know this is the era we're in. Civil War. We're in the 1950s with mobsters. You know, that's the thing that has to help you contextualize whatever might happen during the investigation. So, yeah, it's it's cool if people like the ghost hunt better, but I agree with you. Vegetables before dessert.
2: And have you had something happen during one of the investigations <laughs> that has ended up adding to the folklore of a place or adding to the stories and saying like, you know, when you're telling a story and you're like, oh my God, and then we did this for the show and they totally either proved this or, they, you know, I guess... Prove is a big word uh, yeah. when we're talking about it, but either they, they helped uh, solidify the story or add to the folklore of the place, like part of your work is adding to the folklore. Have you, have you seen that happen?
0: Yeah, no, and that happens every time any one of these shows comes on, you know, you, and, and by the way, it also happens when you, uh, Michael or, or anyone else or Wendy or Allison, when you go to a location and check it out, you just, oh, I heard this place is haunted. So you walk in and you look around and you're like, I don't see any ghosts. You are now part of the story forever. You may tell another person. You know what? I think that story's all hype. They try to sell t-shirts that say we're the most haunted place in America or whatever. Yeah. Uh, or I I may- bought those t-shirts. No, it's cool. I get it. <laughs> o- or maybe you have an experience you didn't count on and you come home and you tell people, "Oh, I thought this was just a story, but there was this guy standing in the doorway and then he vanished." And then that becomes part of the story, part of the folklore. So, yeah, every time a a show is obviously going to have a bigger impact because there's so many viewers. You know, you and I can have an experience and tell a few folks who tell a few others, and it's going to spread slowly. But a TV show suddenly writes a whole new chapter. And this is any TV show, not just Ghost Adventures. Mm -hmm. Writes a whole new chapter into the folklore. In one night, it happens. So we live in a time. Folklore has always existed. But we live in a time when it spreads and changes and passes from one person to another. At light speed, you know, you, you can tweet a picture or something and suddenly it's viral in a matter of a couple of hours when when it used to take maybe even generations. Now it's just light speed.
4: Well, let's talk a little bit, too, about, you know, some of the other things that you've done, Jeff. So recently you climbed Mount Kilimanjaro. I did. Tell us about that.
1: Congratulations.
0: Yeah, that's what awesome. What an
4: adventure.
0: It was really cool. So I am um, uh, the story actually starts back in 2015. No, for I've been interested in Kilimanjaro since college. I took two semesters of Swahili, which is a... a, a Sweet.
4: Oh. Can you teach us something in Swahili, <laughs>
0: uh, Hamjambo, which is... <laughs> hello, all of you. Uh, okay, all right.
4: Hamjambo, okay. Uh,
0: you, you, uh, so took like, me, I, you
2: took me there.
4: We, uh, so, yeah. <laughs> we had another guest in the past, uh, Dr. Martin Walsh, who's an expert in in uh, Swahili. He's investigated the Popo Yeah in zanzibar so anyway so what was so no, so, so
0: jumbo time. is like hello if i just said like jumbo that's like <laughs> hi hello uh hujambo is like hello to just one person ham jumbo is a group of people and then there's like these habari greetings so i might be like habari zakazi like how is your work and uh you know Habari asabui which is good morning and, and so there's there's a uh, it's actually a really easy language to learn in college this is a total crazy side story but uh i i took french
4: we love crazy yeah. sized stories. I, I first took
0: French and I failed because my, my last name is French and, and I had forgotten that all French teachers are evil. Um, so uh, it slipped my Except mind. Except the one that also
2: had a crush on in college. Never mind.
0: Okay. That Come one on was now. evil too. I assure you. <laughs> it's, it's a prerequisite. You can't get around it. So then I took Spanish and I was getting totally confused. And a friend's like, you've got to take Swahili. The professor's amazing. And we had a language requirement. So I took Swahili one. And in the first day of class, This hand sheepishly goes up in the class because the the teacher is a bit of a former celebrity and someone goes, "Uh, Dr. Leonard, um, I heard something. And so he smiles and he puts the syllabus down and he goes, all right, let's do this now. I was the co-founder of Sha Na Na. I was on before Hendrix, Hendrix at Woodstock and (gasps) <gasps> and, and, and everyone's like, was, his voice was awesome. Like this. <laughs> did, t-
4: Is it Bowser? No, <laughs> everyone
0: remembers Bowser. <laughs> Bowser no. doesn't speak Swahili. He has no. and, and so, so this guy like was just <laughs> this awesome voice. And, he, and when they got the TV show, he didn't want to do it. So he, you never saw him on TV. He went to Kenya to find himself, oh. taught English, learned Swahili, became this like really renowned linguist and just a great teacher. And I took like four other courses with him because he was awesome. Anyway, so uh, I've thought about Kilimanjaro because it's it straddles uh, Kenya and uh, Tanzania right near the equator in Eastern Africa I was a hiker after college got out of it so in 2015 uh, my I lost my brother-in-law Chris to cancer he um he had uh he was 46 at the time he was 43 I think when he was diagnosed and it was out of nowhere just he had some health problems and at 43 no one would think you're at like stage four cancer with tumors everywhere God, so, um, yeah, it was, yeah, it was awful. And so he left behind a, a six-year-old uh, son, my nephew, and, and two children from a previous marriage. And so I, I wanted to do something to honor him. And uh, it all kind of came together. About six months later, a friend of mine who works for the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society was at one of my paranormal events. And I'd done stuff for them in the past to raise money. And, and she said, hey, Jeff, we got this new thing, this new fundraiser. I think you dig it. I want to tell you about it. And I'm like, OK, whatever, Amy. You know, if I can, I'll help if I can. I'm really busy. And she goes, we're putting a team together to climb Kilimanjaro. And I, I just froze in my tracks. I went, what, oh, what now? Me. Like, where? And, and she said, Kilimanjaro. And I was just like, I'm in. I, I mean, I, I got to figure out a lot more than that, but I'm pretty sure I'm, I'm in. And so um, we started training started raising money for Leukemia and Lymphoma Society and that took uh, that was from pretty much like September of 2016 right up until March uh, we left on St. Patrick's Day March 17th of this year and so it was just a, a whole lot of training hiking in mountains and, and getting out there in the cold and in the frigid New England winters and, and getting up there and um, but total bucket list dream come true and I'll tell you it was a lot more of a spiritual thing than I ever would have guessed so we get out there and it's going to take six days to get to the top and two days to get down because we go up one way and come down a more direct route to a different way. And uh, that's six days without a shower, or eight days without a shower, which is, you know, it's just, a, you know, no, no flushing toilets, you know, uh, the, not a single luxury. Oh, as right, the
3: so,
0: <laughs> <laughs> so uh, but I, but I do it for Kilimanjaro, you know, and going up there, it's amazing how when you're that detached from everything, no no email, no texts, no nothing, uh, it's liberating in a way. But as we get up into the higher altitude, the, the summit night, which is where it really turns spiritual for me, we start from Barafu Base Camp, which is fifteen thousand three hundred feet in elevation, and at that point, there's one half of the oxygen that we have down here, and it's pretty tough to breathe. But we're we're going up to nineteen thousand three hundred forty one feet, so we got to go uh, three point one miles. And four thousand feet in elevation, and it's exponentially worse the higher you go. And we start at midnight because the whole point—it's going to take eight hours to go three miles. I mean, I can run three miles in twenty-six minutes, right? So, you know, but but it's going to take eight hours. (laughs) So so we start at midnight with headlamps, and you got to picture this—you can't see anything; it's total darkness. And we're making our way up through the, the the highest part of the peak to Uhuru Peak, and. As we we get climbing higher and higher, all we see is like a glow, maybe like a three-foot glow around your feet from your headlamp. That's all you can see. And at about 17,000 feet, I didn't think I'd make it. I I couldn't breathe anymore. I'm breathing as deep as I possibly can to get enough air. And at one point, I I had unzipped my jacket to go to the bathroom, and I I couldn't zip my jacket back up. And there was nothing wrong with the zipper. I I didn't have the motor skills to get the zipper together to zip it up. My brain is lacking oxygen. And I thought, okay, just a little more. I'll just follow the feet. But then around 5 a.m., I turned around and there's like this purple right along the horizon all the way across. And I realized, oh, man, the sun is coming. I'll just make it to sunup. And by the time we hit the volcanic rim at a place called Stella Point, the sun breaks. There's this sea of clouds far, far below. And at that moment, the temperature warms up like 15 degrees. I still can't breathe. But I realized... I'm looking around, you know, there's no bugs, there's no birds, there's no animals, there's no moss, there's no grass. Nothing but nothing grows at 19,000 feet in elevation. There's no resources for any living thing. The Maasai people call that peak the house of God for a reason, because that's where God dwells and we're not meant to go there. And at that moment, when I saw the sun, I realized I'm going to make it, even though there's another hour to go and I still can't breathe. And something has granted me access. Because we don't belong here. I mean, we passed signs, markers, where people had died from the altitude. Like, died like two years ago. There's a marker. It said 2015, so and so, you know, uh, attitude before altitude, the the epitaph read on the little stone marker. And we have no business being there. And yet, something allowed access. And it just trudging along that, that last half mile, which took another hour. And touching the sign at nineteen thousand three hundred and forty one feet, the very highest point in the whole continent of africa uh, I, I laughed, I cried at the same time, and, and then I held up a picture of my brother in law chris and and posed for a photo with it so I could give it to my nephew and mm. um, It was just an absolutely spiritual life altering experience, and uh, one i 'll never forget, and just grateful that I got to do it and I raised uh, over seventeen thousand dollars for the leukemia and lymphoma society so wow
1: congratulations that's incredible that is something else that is so sorry for your loss yeah
0: Yeah.
4: that's so amazing and perhaps mike we should link in the show notes to the leukemia and lymphoma society so people can see how they can still help and jeff what occurred to me as you were were telling that story is is something of a personal motto that i thought of the other day which is uh scared is just another way to spell sacred yeah yeah i just wondered if you had anything to say about that idea I, i think uh
0: you know, I I really view all of this as a a kind of a spiritual journey as well as a historic one and a mental one and and everything else. And sometimes we got to get ourselves out of our comfort zones, especially, it's funny to me how many people are, are, let's face it, middle-aged who are into the paranormal, right? We've we've engineered these really comfortable lives. We've got the friends we want. We got rid of the friends we don't, you know.
4: But you drink that water. That's
0: true. So I get to stay here, but but our, our lives become kind of routine and comfortable, and we need to shake it up. And sometimes we shake it up by climbing mountains. Sometimes we shake it up by going to abandoned buildings at midnight under the full moon. And we want to be scared. We want to get tap into that primal thing that lets us know we're we're human and we're going through something that's not just you know go to work, come home, cut the lawn, do the laundry, cook the you know cook the dinner, do the dishes. That that humdrum life that we have, we we crave this. And I think being afraid. Uh, first of all, there's a physiological thing that happens when we're afraid. We, we we release adrenaline. Our senses get sharper. This is this is fight or flight stuff. This is stuff that uh, goes back for all of human history, and it allows us our brains to record what's happening because if we survive, we can pass it along to our children and make make the, our lineage you know all the stronger and so on. Mm-hmm. So I think being scared and and putting yourself into frightening situations, whatever it is, uh, is good for us. And, and it does connect us to this, these primal parts of us that are, are easy to lose as we get older and we live in a world with Twitter and Facebook and Google and everything else. Uh, I think it's a good thing. And so I'm totally on board with, with scared and sacred being close enough.
2: Well, I think that's a great point, Jeff, because you're talking about in the, in the way that um, you feel the need to be tested. Like when you're, when you're younger, it's almost that the testing is just getting by. The testing is just making your own life and separating yourself from your family and your parents and, and enough that you can establish yourself as your own. And then once you kind of get that, it's like, well, all right, then. Uh, yeah. You know, yeah. what do I do? Now Wait, And is it going to be climb a mountain or is it going to be try to do a marathon or is it going to be, you know, things that test yourself in a way like that. And I guess the paranormal is on that same level. And you're right. The people that do, I think about the, the, the Facebook advertising that goes in to some of these ghost tours. And I think about, I think about that certain, uh, that, okay, uh, women between 35 and 50 let's, that's, that's our market because they're going to bring out the husbands or boyfriends or second husbands, you know, kind of thing. And, uh, but it, it is that certain, like, you feel like you've beaten something by getting past it. And once you're there, well, what do, we, what do we do to keep this exciting? What do we do so it's not just walk? So we're not ghosts here.
0: So here's the thing. You know, studying the paranormal, whether that's Bigfoot, cryptids, ghosts, UFOs, whatever. I, I, I would lump all that under paranormal. Uh, you're asking the biggest questions that humans have asked for as long as we've been walking upright. And that is, with ghosts, what happens after we die? Uh, with with aliens, are we alone in the universe? And with Bigfoot and Loch Ness Monster and stuff like that, do we know every creature that walks our planet with us? These are the questions that people have been asking forever. And it's something we all have to come to grips with for ourselves. There, I don't think there'll ever be consensus, but that's okay. It doesn't matter. You know, there's, there's never been consensus on religion. And think of the resources those guys have. Yeah. I mean, it's- you know. They got yeah. billions and billions of dollars and followers and, like, you know, l- land and real estate and all that other stuff. and right. We're just a bunch of, like, we have EMF meters. <laughs> right.
4: <laughs> right? But we can still make a difference. And, you know, we're talking a lo- about a lot of big stuff yeah. here. So, you know, I wanted to mention, um, you know, because maybe a lot of people don't know that you also started a, a foundation for those affected by the Sandy Hook tragedy. And, and I was really Paying attention to that. Um, I teach fourth grade and uh, I'm on safety committee. So we talk about lockdown plans. We, you know, talk about uh, Sandy Hook and what happened and, you know, what that means to us. And um, so can you tell us a little bit about uh, why you started the the Newtown Memorial?
0: So uh, I went to Sandy Hook Elementary School as a kid and uh, I was Mm -hmm. there in fifth grade And um, my family still lives in the same house. My parents still live in the same house that I grew up in. And that house, the way the roads work, if you're going to go anywhere, whether it's downtown to get pizza or groceries or travel somewhere else, you go by the San Diego Elementary School every day. It's less than one mile. And that's the way to go to anywhere. So um, I've passed it countless times since I left the elementary school. And I had friends from high school that taught there. You know, um, friends that uh, my uh, buddy that I graduated with is now the assistant principal of Sandy Hook Elementary School. So I have a lot of connections. And of course, being in a town that small, you know, people directly affected when it when it happened. We had just had like a a little mini reunion, high school reunion um, uh, in in November. It was the day after Thanksgiving. And of course, uh, it was just about two weeks later that the Sandy Hook uh, event happened. And. Uh, so we were a lot of us were already in touch. And so as soon as it went down, you know, we were uh, myself and Brian Moriello, who was the we, we kind of founded it together. And he was really the spearhead of it, to be honest. And I said, I'd help all I could. Uh, we we got to do something. We just have to do something. And so we raised about a million and a half dollars. We were the very first 501c3 to form. We um we called in help from congressmen and senators. And, and um because if you want to form a 501c3, it typically takes like 18 months. Sure. Unless you're responding to a, a specific tragedy, which is the the loophole we got through on, and we were able to get help and and get it approved in uh, like three or four weeks, one of the one of the problems with Sandy Hook is that so many people were collecting money, uh, for for Sandy Hook that no one knew if it was legit, where it was going. There were scams, people that weren't audited, and so on. And so uh, everyone was looking for a five hundred one c three. And I know the the Red Cross stepped up, um, but you know everyone, and then it got political, which is a worse tragedy than what happened. If, if in some weird way, but um, but we were always just about just trying to get help to the families and the people affected, and that's that's what we did. We we gave the money to um, to the families, and there's also a lot of people uh, don't understand. There was also a good dozen kids that had to step over all the carnage. And um, are going to have PTSD and, and are, are horribly affected for probably the rest of their lives. But they didn't take a bullet. So no one talks about them and no one tries to get them any help. So those are just, that's just some of the collateral damage from that awful event and the weird thing to me is that my own childhood memories of that place have been kind of overwritten at this point mm. you know i remember playing in the schoolyard and listening to dr demento on a tape recorder you know during during <laughs> right. recess and and now yeah. like it's all gone it's uh it's just i can't think of sandy hook without thinking of that and it's, uh, it's horrible and it could happen again well do you
2: ever have to deal with the um because there's a certain you know element especially in the paranormal community and that has to deal with like well you know you're raising money for something that's fake.
0: Yeah, no, that's, um, that is, uh, so deeply, deeply insulting and hurtful when people think that. Um, and and I've addressed this before. So, um, on the one hand, I, I understand why people think that as well as other conspiracies, because it's easier to believe the conspiracy than the truth. You sleep better at night saying, I mean, I've talked to people that are like, there's no dead kids. And I'm like, Are you stupid? Are you mean or both? Which one is it? Um, If you don't think that could happen again tomorrow, that when a suicidal person goes in with, you know, armed for bear with multiple weapons, they could do that again tomorrow. And you're fooling yourself if you think it couldn't happen again tomorrow. Mm -hmm. It absolutely could. Sandy Hook had the same uh, security measures that my daughter's elementary school has you got to show your license to get in before they buzz you in. You gotta, then you go in and then you got to go to the office. They had that, too. He just shot through the door. So it doesn't matter what they had. You know, um, schools are not going to install bulletproof glass. They can't even afford books. So, um, so yeah, that's really hurtful. And uh, not only that, you'd say, well, what was the agenda? So they could take our guns away? They didn't take our guns away. Nothing happened. Gun laws didn't really change. So not that so the so the conspiracy theory holds no water whatsoever just some people got really really hurt and one of the things when i when i'm out somewhere and i talk about sandy hook and someone says you know either direction on the gun control debate it's really really offensive to me if the first thing you can think of is get rid of the guns or we need more guns when i mention sandy hook that we got it we got to get past that the question you should ask is how are the families doing now? How's the community been healing? Is there more we can do to help people that were affected? Those are the questions you should ask when someone says, I went to elementary, you know, Sandy Hook Elementary School and my family lives there. Not, let's talk about guns. That's, right. it's awful.
2: You don't blame a tornado or something that happens. The first thing you don't say is like, well, the we- you know, the weather, man, have really called it. Like it's all, uh, yeah. it's all, it's all irrelevant to the actual tragedy where humans died. And that's the only thing that's, that matters.
0: That's I agree, and so that's the thing, and and it's it's very sad that it got so politicized that it almost can't be mentioned anymore without turning into some political debate. And we we live in a, a time when political debates are are ripping us apart. Um, you know, like we can't agree on anything politically anymore. It's it's this this whole post truth society. Everybody's lying to us. It's all a conspiracy. I mean, it all just feeds itself. So I I just try to say like, hey, let's get back to like being objective, good thinkers, and human empathy. I mean, if we can just get back to that, maybe, maybe there's hope. And you can do that in your own community. You don't have to, you know, go out and, and, and try to change the whole world. Just change your own neighborhood, and then you can start there.
4: And get back to the yeah, people. Yeah, of course. Right? Instead, of, instead of, you know, these uh, abstract issues or, you know, as with history, you know, dates and, and uh, names. I mean, it's not about that. It's about human experience.
0: And let me add one other thing too, you know, in what comes from tragic places like this, uh, we've done a lot of locations on ghost adventures and I've been to a lot of places. And, you know, some people could consider it really crass to suggest a location's haunted where a tragedy took place. And I've always said, I think some places are haunted because they should be haunted, because we should be haunted by what happened there and we shouldn't forget. And if a ghost serves us and helps us do that, then I applaud that ghost. You know, mm-hmm. what, is it, what is a ghost anyway? You know, I, I've yet to truly define it, other than it's simply a connection to our past. How literal, we can all debate about, but it is indeed a connection to our past. So a, a place being haunted, you know, people sometimes get offended saying like, well, you're implying that there's some earthbound spirit that can't move on. I've never found a building or location that's haunted 100% of the time Otherwise, this would be over. I would have already called in like all the news crews and been like, there's the ghost standing right there.
2: <laughs> You'd be counting money right now.
0: Interview away. Ask your questions. But, but the reality hey. is this stuff is happening not on our terms necessarily. Uh, and, and it's not 100% of the time, which means it's, it's uh, happening for reasons that are beyond our control and for, for reasons we may not fully understand other than uh, I can think of a few places that I'm, I'm damn glad that are haunted because we should remember. I'm glad Gettysburg is haunted. I'm glad that people talk about ghost experiences there almost daily because that was really awful and bloody in a time when brother against brother, countryman against countryman, uh when when our our, our nation almost got torn apart. So let that haunt us forever, yeah. I say.
4: Yeah, and we should be thinking of that in particular. Yeah, right for sure. Um as we were saying with with all the political debates going on tearing us apart, but, you know, I wanted to chime in on what you were saying, Jeff, about about that, about how places, certain places should be haunted so that you don't forget. And that's, you know, uh, uh, Mike and, and Wendy work with me on, on haunted history tours. And so, I mean, that's why I started my haunted history tour is because there were things that happened in my city that have been forgotten. People that were incredible, just, you know unbelievable people but they were there they existed they had things to teach us and they still have things to teach us if we listen so um you know that's why i started my haunted history tour so i i could i could bring that back uh something that we lost you know retrieve that part of uh you know collective soul and and i think too that that going back to the whole scared versus sacred thing i think that you know ghost stories like people Come up to me, and they're like, "Oh, you know, how how can you handle being in that haunted location?" Well, it's because I guess I have a different perspective on hauntings as as um, an affirmation of life. Yeah, you know that that uh, we we don't know what it is. You know, maybe it's not the afterlife, but uh, it, it's something that g- can give a hope to people. Uh, it's something that you know can can make you think a little bit more deeply about what life is all about. And so I don't see it as a scary thing if, if some it's almost scary when things do, don't happen when, when things do happen Then I'm like whoa, there's more to this life than just the mundane Yeah, and that makes me really excited Well, if
0: nothing else you want to think about What ghost do you want to leave behind and uh, there's a, a Mexican proverb that I, I love to quote? Uh, that says we all die three deaths and the first death happens when your body expires And the second death happens when your corpse is laid into the ground, but the third and final death comes somewhere down the line, and it happens when your name is uttered for the last time. And that, to me, kind of sums it all up. I mean, how do you want to be, you know, Shakespeare is still with us, you know, Mozart is still with us. Uh, We can name many other figures who are still with us. So um, how do you want to be remembered? And who will you haunt? <laughs> I have a...
4: <laughs> yeah, and that's a death that people can't come right. back from. Yeah. We, you know, and that's that's what kind of, the, to me, the mission of of uh, ghost tourism and, um, you know, writing books is, is all about, yeah. is bringing these untold stories back in, into our consciousness and and bringing these incredible people back to inform our lives. So,
2: Jeff, if people want to find out your ghost stories... Where can they find them? Where can people find you on the webs?
0: Yeah, so com has links to everything that I do whether it's mm-hmm. my my lecture tour or events or uh, Amazon Prime videos. Uh, Ghostvillage.com's got all my, you know, all my ghostly material is up there. You can check that out as well and I- I'm always happy to to correspond with with anyone that's searching. I think it's uh, I think the most important part of all this is just the discussion. I, I don't have the answers. I don't pretend to, but I think the discussion is a good thing and we should just keep talking about it
2: absolutely so please go visit uh, jeffbelanger.com and check out all of his cool stuff go on Amazon Prime watch his shows throw your money at him because his stuff
0: is awesome and
1: come to the Chicago (laughs) Ghost Conference where we're going to see you Jeff so we're looking forward to that
0: I know and thank you guys for offering to buy all my drinks there I appreciate that
2: (laughs) (laughs) hey as long as you're having. I don't think there's enough money. As long as you're handling the the karaoke there, I think it's going to be fun. So, okay, so you guys can find out more on Jeff, and you can find all those links and stuff like that directly to his books and his site. Othersidepodcast.com slash 152 is where these show notes are going to be. Check out Allison's blog and Milwaukee Investigations and MilwaukeeGhosts.com. And let's go to this week's song. Well, Mike, we just have to have him back on the show. I would say that uh, Jeff is just such an entertaining guest. And we're going to see him at the Michigan Paragon in August.
1: right. Yes, Yes. excellent. And we want to thank Allison from MilwaukeeGhosts.com.
2: Yes, uh, Allison for setting it up. Yes, and
1: and for being on the interview with us. mm -hmm, As always, excellent times. And always
2: having lovely questions. Mm -hmm, Very much. Um, So my favorite part of the interview today, number one was Jeff talking about the catacombs. Oh, yeah, because so cool. the, uh, I had uh, Paris was my favorite vacation I've ever been on. I really, I loved oh, it. mais oui,
1: and,
2: bien sûr. <laughs> and I no, I, absolutely, I love Paris. And the catacombs were very intense, mm, incredible. Experience. So intense. Like sacred kind of thing. Yes. Going back to Allison's, the scared, uh, you know, sacred is just another way to say scared. That's right. Yeah. I enjoyed that story, but the story I liked better was Mercy Brown, the Rhode Island vampire. Mm. Like, first of all, you're the vampire in the smallest state. Yeah, that... <laughs> like, when you drive through Rhode Island, it takes, like, 15 minutes. You, you blink like,
1: and you miss it. Right, hey, was that Rhode
2: Island? Like, did we pay a toll? Aww. I don't even remember. Like, there was probably a bridge. We probably paid six bucks.
1: Cute little Rhode Island.
2: But the fact is, like, that Mercy Brown story stuck with me. That was a really good one. Yeah, and so the idea that they dug up her body they burned her heart, and they fed it to her sick brother, and he died anyway. Yeah. It was just a, a perfect metaphor, I think, for the fact that when you, um, let's say you're fighting with somebody, mm-hmm. and you bring up the past, Ooh. right? Yeah, that's low. It doesn't necessarily solve anything. Uh-huh. Okay. So the idea of the song this week is that when you keep on living in these old areas or bringing mm. up the past and stuff, it doesn't... Move you forward. Mm. It doesn't solve your problem. True. So, this track is dedicated to Mercy Brown. Thank you for the story, Jeff. And it's called Digging Up the Dead.
0: to today's episode. You can find us online at OthersidePodcast.com. Until next time, see you on the other side.
2: All right. Did we tell you about our Patreon? <laughs> about a chance to celebrate uh, the new songs, videos, podcasts, blog posts, newsletters, all the things we uh, come out with every week.
1: And we've got some more stuff coming
2: soon that's going to be very special. It's going it's to blow your... <laughs> Frickin' minds, man. (laughs) So, anyway, our Patreon community, all the people that uh, donate a couple bucks a month or more to see you on the other side and Sunspot, and what they get is special access, special hangouts. We're trying to figure out our next hangout right now. That's right. And we want to know what date is good for you. Because usually we do it the last Thursday of the month. Yeah. But that doesn't work for everybody. Yep. So we're going to send out a poll to our Patreons to see when is the best time to hang out for right. you. And
1: if you'd like to join the Patreon community, yeah, you can do that by visiting othersidepodcast.com slash donate.
2: Join the fun. It's a very hot website. You're going to love it. And we would be remiss if we did not thank Dr. Ned.
1: Ned. Thanks for coming to Summerfest, Ned. Yep. It was great to see you Always Summerfest, great, Ned.
2: Ned. And Dr. Ned is at the level of Patreon where he gets a shout out every week. You can be at that level, too. Yes. Just check out othersidepodcast.com slash donate. But the real thing is, is we're building a community of like-minded people who are really into this stuff and want to have uh, a reverent, funny, yet sometimes serious discussion about cool paranormal activity, pop culture, and all the things around.
1: And I got to say that I'm really thankful to have met some of these new friends
2: because
1: mm-hmm. I'm, I'm starting to get to know people, you know, and right. it's, it's fun. I love it. So
2: the community part of it is the part we like the best, is because mm-hmm. we like to. De- I mean, in a lot of times when you're in this, we've talked about this in the podcast before. Mm-hmm. You talk to somebody and you're like, "Oh, I, I think they're cool," and then they end up being crazy. Oh, <laughs> and so the idea is that we're developing a, a community of people who can have conversations with each other and be reasonable. Yeah, and we can question each other sometimes. We can challenge each other sometimes, but in the end, we all respect the opinions and we all go in a direction where we find a little bit more truth in our lives. Indeed. So, check that out, othersidepodcast.com slash donate. Thanks, Ned, and to all our Patreons. Thank you. And you kids out there, we'll see
3: you on the other side.
2: <laughs> and I know I, I love Paris ba-da-ba-ba-da-ba hey (laughs) all right good job everybody that was a lot of fun